Previously, uncover up the pill plot. This is a big choice to make, and you got to make it quick. We got to get your tickets. We got to get your passport. I mean, it it really was a rush job. The plan put him and the person he was going to be traveling with at risk of getting arrested and jailed. The Supreme Court ended its term today with its long-awaited abortion ruling. The justices upheld Pennsylvania's restrictive abortion law. Just after noon on June 29, 1992, the very day that Larry and Leona are set to fly to London, some news comes in from Washington. It's the Planned Parenthood v. Casey decision, and it's about to make abortion access that much harder. The case upholds Roe, but by a 7-2 vote, the justices rule that states are free to introduce all kinds of new regulations to restrict abortion access. Justice Anthony Kennedy explains restrictions are constitutional. So long as it does not place a substantial obstacle in the path of the woman's choice, throughout the woman's pregnancy, the state may enact measures designed to persuade the woman to choose childbirth over abortion. This is a massive blow to reproductive access. In the years that follow, states introduced long waiting periods for patients seeking an abortion, rules about hallway sizes at clinics, and hospital admitting privileges. Things that aren't designed to make abortion illegal, just a lot harder to access. With Casey, the abortion pill isn't just good to have, it's absolutely critical. Leona and Larry have to come through. The plot has its first test at Heathrow Airport in London on the morning of June 30th, just after they land. British passport officers ask Larry and Leona, why are they just in town for 24 hours? Larry smiles and offers a believable excuse. They're in town to attend a family planning conference. It works. The two head into central London and split up. Joan recalls Larry's itinerary. He stayed at the Pall Mall Club and she put her up at a hotel and he settled her in there and then he went off to the museum, to an art museum. Larry visits the National Gallery in Trafalgar Square and there, as he's weaving through paintings from Renaissance masters, it's possible that an unidentified source slips Larry a small package containing RU486. And the reason I say it's possible is because it's unclear exactly how Larry got the medication on this trip. I've been reporting this story for a year. I've searched through hundreds of documents, talked to dozens of sources, and I still don't know where Larry got the pills from or who gave them to him. Only Dr. Tyler, Louise Tyler and Larry know how he got the pill to bring back. Only they know. That he never divulged to me. Larry buries his source for good reason. In 1992, the abortion pill is legal in England, with one very important caveat. 
there's a 90-day residency requirement to get the medication. But Larry and Leona are only going to be in London for 24 hours. So Larry finds a connection, another fixer, who breaks UK law to give him the abortion pills. And on the tightest of timelines, Larry succeeds in acquiring two things. Plausible deniability for his co-conspirators in London, whoever they may be, and, most importantly, the RU486 pills. They have them in hand when they return to the airport a few hours later. But for this plot to work, Larry and Leona need to be caught. So Larry has his office send a memo to U.S. Customs Commissioner Carol Hallett, tipping her off. An American woman six weeks pregnant will be arriving at JFK Airport carrying one dose of RU486, the abortion pill. And then just before boarding the flight, Larry calls Joan, because there's another key step in his plot, and Joan's going to help carry it out. July 1st morning came, and I'm on the phone to the press. I had a list of numbers of the various different newspapers and media, so I was calling them to say, you know, here comes the pill. From Sony Music Entertainment, this is Cover Up the Pill Plot. I'm your host, TJ Raphael. On today's show, Chapter 3, Showtime. Larry and Leona bring the pill back from the UK, and, under the hot lights of the national press, the cracks begin to show. I'm angry, I'm stressed out. She was shaky, physically shaky. And we said, just be outside that door at about 6 o'clock in the morning. Hey, maybe we have a shot here at winning this. They were out there chasing her down. Who they got is not who they wanted. Stay with us. In the 1970s, John Todd burst onto the evangelical scene with a shocking tale. He claimed to be a former witch, involved in a then-unheard-of secret organization called the Illuminati, and urged Christians to prepare for a violent world takeover. First of all, the number one weapon in everybody's home should be a 12-gauge pump shotgun. Hear the amazing story of one of the originators of the modern-day conspiracy theory. From Magnificent Noise and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Cover Up, The Conspiracy Tapes. Larry and Leona return to the States on British Airways Flight 173. The flight is rough for Leona. Larry can see that she's exhausted and also nauseous. Possibly from her pregnancy, possibly from nerves about what is waiting for them in New York. Federal agents, the press, and the possibility that the lawyers were right, that it would all be for nothing and that they'd be charged for transporting the drugs in. They could face up to a year in federal prison for this stunt. But Larry is a man with a plan. And he runs over it one more time with Leona. Get off the plane, go to customs, hand over the pills, let officials confiscate the pills, leave the airport together, God willing, and address reporters. About an hour before landing, Larry hands Leona something incredibly light and at the same time, impossibly heavy. An envelope containing the abortion pills. There's one last thing to do before they hit JFK. Leona makes a quick costume change in the airplane toilet. She slips into something that Joan lent her. I had to 
you give her the black skirt. Everybody wears jeans. But Larry thought, no, let's keep it a little bit more formal and conservative. Larry is thinking about optics. When Leona meets the press, he wants her to seem sympathetic, respectable, maybe even unimpeachable. He thinks that the black pencil skirt might help. But Leona is a self-identified anarchist. She's a punk from the left coast. She won't go along with Larry's image overhaul. Not completely. So she wears a brightly colored kufi over her close-cropped, wispy brown hair and a red button-down shirt. At around 12.40 p.m., the flight lands at JFK. Larry and Leona are the last two people off the plane. They present their passports at the U.S. Customs desk, and Leona notices that their names, Later and Benton, are written in big letters on a piece of paper, along with the word female. An agent asks them a question that tells them everything is going according to plan. He asks if they're carrying drugs that are banned in the United States. Leona says, That I had some medication, and they wanted to look at it, and I gave it to them. Agents separate them. Larry tries to stay with Leona. He says their lawyers are waiting outside the gate. He's insistent. He tells them her attorneys have a right to be present for any search, any interrogation, but he's denied. So she faced all those people alone. And then they looked through my luggage and then they took me into the back room and they patted me down and they said that they were detaining the medication and it was gonna go to the FDA. They confiscate the pills, which is exactly what needs to happen in order to challenge the ban. Steve Heilig, Larry's fixer in California, remembers Larry explaining how tense it all was. The customs agents, they realized what had happened here and they were not happy they'd been tricked. Larry and Leona have just broken several laws. Dr. Tyre, too. She risks losing her medical license for writing Leona's prescription. And Larry and Leona both could face jail time and fines. Worse, Larry's lawyers don't think he'd have any chance of beating the charges. Before the trip, they wrote him with a warning. We can conceive of no defense to any such proceedings. But then something weird happens. Larry and Leona are released. And there's no time to wonder why or if the feds are just building their case and waiting to bring charges. The next phase of Larry's plan is about to begin. He and Leona need to tell the world what they have done. To tell the government, we're ready for a fight. In a confrontation prearranged by the nation's top abortion rights activists, this 29-year-old woman, six weeks pregnant, returned to the United States today in the first step of a long-planned battle to legalize Europe's controversial abortion pill here in America. Jones' efforts to alert the media have worked brilliantly. When Larry and Leona exit customs, there are dozens of journalists waiting for them. U.S. Customs officials confiscated about a dozen RU-486 pills from this woman who wanted only to be identified as Leona. Leona had a prescription. The young woman who says she's six weeks pregnant is going to challenge the FDA in court. The test proved that the Food and Drug Administration isn't playing games. 
Dr. Louise Tyre has met them at JFK. She gives Leona's arm a supportive squeeze as the cameras flash. Leona briefly rests her head on Dr. Tyre's shoulder. Larry puts on his reading glasses and steps up to the mic to address the gaggle of reporters. We believe it is a disgrace to American medicine that the Bush administration bars this valuable drug for American women. This isn't Larry's first rodeo with the media. He knows how to work a mic. He's wearing a tailored suit for the occasion, and yet... There he was, smoking away like crazy at this press conference, right underneath the sign saying, smoking is prohibited. Next up, Dr. Tyre. She's just retired as the medical director of Planned Parenthood, and she lends her expertise to the show. I and others will do all in our power to ensure that this outrageous ban is lifted and to make RU486 a realistic option for American women. And when it's Leona's turn, she makes an appeal. I know that RU486 is the treatment I want. It allows me control of my body and removes me from the operating room and from surgery. At first, she appears confident. I feel like it was necessary to do it, and in some ways I feel lucky that I was here at the right time so I could help. But Leona is about six weeks pregnant. And she hasn't slept well in almost three days. Pretty soon, it's all too much. I'm angry. I'm stressed out. She's wiping away tears as she's trying to talk about this. We were never in a position to provide her whatever support she should have had. Patricia Ireland is the former president of the National Organization for Women. She'd go on to lead the organization for a decade. That day, she turns up at the airport to offer support and show that the national abortion rights movement is united in bringing the pill to America. But that's not to say she can't see the flaws in Larry's plan. Iona Benton was not well prepared in advance for what she would be facing. It's one thing to rehearse a press statement for a few hours, but it's another thing to truly face the press. Reporters ask Leona about breaking the law, about taking on the White House, and about why she wants an abortion in the first place. And she started to melt right in front of us. The minute we saw her start to wobble a little bit, we got on either side of her and whisked her through the crowd of reporters and into a women's room with all these cameras and you know reporters following. It's hard to imagine a less comforting place than an airport bathroom. But as the media circus buzzes outside the door, it's all Leona has to collect herself before heading back into the glare of the national press. So she was like a deer in the headlights, is how I would describe her in that bathroom. She was shaky, physically shaky, her voice, her hands. It was clear that she had just been overwhelmed. Larry and Leona return to the quiet of his Manhattan apartment. But pretty quickly after that first brush with the press at JFK, the media's attention starts to move beyond the stunt with the pill at the airport and onto Leona herself. She becomes the story. Larry and Steve have been trying to protect her identity. In the news release and at the press conference, she's only called by her first name. But that wasn't going to last. They got 
uh, her name very quick. And Larry's theory or idea was that some enterprising uh, reporter had gone to the ticket decks and handed a $100 bill to the clerk and said, can you give us the seating chart for this plane? We don't actually know if that's what happened, but you don't have to stretch your imagination far to figure out other ways her name could have become public, because it was bound to happen. And once it has, once every news outlet carries the name Leona Benton, reporters become frantic to get her story. They were at her house over in the East Bay, you know, before she even got back here. This was hounding. People climbing over your 10-foot fence to get into your garbage. you talking to your mailman and your neighbors like you're a fucking serial killer. They were out there chasing her down. The press want Leona. And at first, they get her. In her statements, she's honest about why she wants this pill. She tells the world that a big part of her motivation for doing all this is about expanding abortion rights, just like she had told Lindsay and Larry from the beginning. But there are personal reasons, too. When Leona was 20 years old, she had gotten pregnant. She had a surgical abortion at a hospital under general anesthesia and found the experience to be alienating. She said, quote, It felt like it was being done to me rather than by me. So when it came to her desire for the abortion pill, she said, quote, I am fully cognizant of the moral complexity of my choice to terminate my pregnancy. I want to be fully aware and participating throughout the entire process. By taking RU486, I can terminate my pregnancy without relinquishing physical and spiritual control. When the media hears this, they pounce. Uh, this was her second abortion. And of course, the image was, oh, you only get one chance, you know, one, one free shot at this where you don't lose your reputation. The fact that she had been pregnant before, that really turned them against her. And I think, I think there was a lot of hate that was directed at her, honestly, from the news and the journalists and this condescension about this young woman. Like, oh, you've been pregnant before. You're not married. You're just a slut, basically. She was treated abysmally. Leona is doing something almost unheard of in 1992. She's talking about her abortion publicly. It's something many women wouldn't even share with close friends or family. Leona is on this island by herself. Honestly, I felt like once Leona was offered up, truthfully. She was met with disdain. The press pigeonholes her, selecting details that paint a very specific yet incomplete picture of her. The Los Angeles Times is quick to mention the tattoo of a spider on Leona's shoulder. Many outlets, including the Washington Post and the New York Times, identify Leona as the, quote, pregnant, unmarried 29-year-old, or, quote, the unmarried social worker. The media also highlights her support of queer rights, and the New York Times calls her the model of an ardent feminist. I've always said in the legal profession that you don't choose your plaintiff or your defendant. The perfect spokesperson would be someone who would make people think of folks they love. 
their sister or their mother or their daughter or their wife um, who didn't have a tattoo, who wasn't supporting lesbian rights, who minded her own business and kept her business private. Lindsay finds this whole spokesperson thing bothersome. The way she sees it, it's not a coincidence that Leona is the person who came forward when no one else would. They had been looking for a long time and they were giving up. They were absolutely giving up because in truth, they could not find that courageous person. We were willing to find someone to have that courage. And of course we found a punk, we found an anarchist, we found a very courageous young woman who had wanted an abortion without apology. That's not who they wanted. They wanted a more sympathetic character. Larry's whole plan didn't account for what it would be like to be the Jane Roe of the 90s, to be the person that the press locked in on. So when Tom Brokaw and Dan Rather request interviews, she says no. Larry's not pleased. He tells the Los Angeles Times that Leona is being, quote, difficult. No matter how strong you are individually, that takes its toll. And, and I think it took its toll on Leona. Today, Leona's 60 years old, and she's still active, and Lindsay sees her from time to time. Oh, I run into her here and there, like mm-hmm. at the anarchist book fair. Last summer, I called Leona and talked to her briefly on the phone. I told her about this podcast and asked her if she would be up for discussing her experience. She told me that she didn't like the way the press treated her back in the 90s. But I asked her if she would be up for one last interview. She told me, quote, I can't do it. I think that suddenly being a national figure and being targeted by a large part of the population with hate I could see why Leona's like, hell no, I'm not talking to anybody. And I think the backlash that she got affected her forever. A few years after the pill plot, Leona spoke to student filmmakers in the Bay Area for a documentary project. She told them, And it's frustrating to me when people think I'm a victim or that I didn't know what I was getting into, because this kind of thing is really important to me, and I don't want to be seen as a victim. Leona may not talk to the press ever again, but back in 1992, she won't let the glare from the media scare her away. She is determined to overturn the abortion pill ban, and she knows the JFK stunt is just the first part. She was a courageous young pregnant woman that felt it was really important to make a stand and that American women should not be denied anything. But... Time is running out for Leona, and if she doesn't get the pill back in the next two weeks, she's facing the very real prospect of undergoing a surgical abortion, something she wants to avoid. So it's time for phase two. They need to sue the government to get the pills back. In order to challenge the federal ban and for Leona to get her preferred form of care, they need the case to go all the way to the Supreme Court. Larry had been getting legal advice from his attorney, Marshall Beale, ahead of the trip to London. But Marshall's just one guy. This case is going to require a team of lawyers. The only problem? Larry doesn't have a team. 
He contacted us and said, will you do this? It was a long shot. Coming up, Larry puts the whole case in the hands of a first-timer. That's next. Stay with us. Do you ever wonder how celebrities order food? Like, is Sarah Paulson a Diet Coke or a regular Coke girlie? (laughs) Some peasant Coke? No. Or how does Sofia Vergara order a pizza? No, no, no tomatoes. I cannot eat tomatoes. Are you killed mushrooms? Not really. (laughs) If these are the details you need, and I know you do, I have the podcast for you. I'm Jesse Tyler Ferguson, and on my podcast, Dinners on Me, I take some notable friends of mine out to dinners in Los Angeles and New York City. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. That thing was delicious. Larry knew he would need more than just a prescription and a plane ticket to make the pill plot a reality. So when Leona agrees to take part at the end of June, just days before the pills get seized at JFK, Larry starts a search for lawyers to represent her when it comes time to sue. He makes an obvious phone call to the American Civil Liberties Union. But the ACLU is busy with the Planned Parenthood v. Casey decision. They don't have time to take on a new lawsuit this big. Larry needs to pull something out of his hat. So he calls the Center for Reproductive Law and Policy. It's this brand new group that had just split from the ACLU only a month before. Maybe they would take the case. My name is Simon Heller. And I was an attorney for Leona Benton in the RE486 case back in 1992. Simon and the team at the Center for Reproductive Law and Policy start working on the case right away, possibly while sitting on the floor because they had barely even set up their office when Larry reached out. We were working out of boxes, sometimes sitting on the top of boxes to get work done. We had almost no furniture to speak of. We were planning to get equipment. In particular, this case happened so quickly that it sort of took us almost by surprise and that we had to really scramble. The Center for Reproductive Law and Policy would grow into a legal powerhouse, arguing cases across the world. But in 1992, it's scrappy, and Leona's case is actually their first. Within a week of Larry and Leona's arrival at JFK, They file a case in the U.S. District Court in New York to get the pills back to Leona. There were sort of two main arguments. First, they point out that the FDA does sometimes let people bring unapproved drugs into the U.S. under the FDA's compassionate use provision, which allows people with serious health conditions to bring small amounts of unapproved medications into America. If there was some drug that was available in another country, but not yet in the United States, but you really wanted to use it for some important health reason, you would be allowed to bring it into the United States. This could have been for things like cancer or for people with AIDS who are trying to use experimental drugs. Simon and the legal team argue that the FDA's compassionate use provision applies to Leona. They say the only reason the pill was seized by customs agents is because it's a drug that's used for abortions. They claim the government's reasoning is purely political. The import ban was put in place because they were targeting 
anything and everything that could advance women's reproductive health care options. That was the first argument. Heller lays out the second one. The second thing we argued was that stopping a particular woman like Leona Benton from using this particular drug violated her constitutional right to have an abortion, specifically by the method that she decided she wanted to use. So the reasoning is twofold. Heller and his team claim the government is playing politics by singling out abortion pills, and by doing that, it's violating Leona's constitutional right to an abortion. But would that convince the courts? It's time to test Simon and his brand new team's worth. The first stop, the U.S. District Court in Brooklyn and Judge Charles Sifton. As soon as we knew that the case was in front of Judge Sifton, we started to think, hey, maybe we have a shot here at winning this. Judge Sifton was unabashedly a progressive judge. He was appointed to the bench by President Jimmy Carter. He's soft-spoken and down-to-earth and isn't into all of the formalities that come with being a judge. He would just come in in his business suit. He didn't believe he should wear a special robe. If you didn't know who he was, you wouldn't know that he was the judge. And another tradition that he didn't believe in, he didn't want anyone to stand up when he came in the courtroom. He thought that as a judge, he was no more deserving of people standing up for him. He was the ideal judge for us to be in front of in many ways. Judge Sifton reviews the facts of Leona's case and makes a decision quickly. On the morning of July 14th, two weeks after landing at JFK, Larry, Leona, and Dr. Louise Tyre meet Simon and his team at the Brooklyn Federal Courthouse. By this point, the stunt has been all over the national news. In most of those cases, the courtroom is mostly empty. But in this kind of case, the courtroom was as packed as a courtroom can be because of the political theater of it. We sort of passed through this sea of faces and made our way to the front of the courtroom where we went to sit at a table across from the U.S. government lawyers who were there to defend the seizure of these pills from Leona at the airport. Judge Sifton isn't having any of it. He says the Bush administration's abortion pill ban is, quote, a lawsuit waiting to happen. He was basically saying, you've done this so badly in such an improper way that I'm surprised nobody has sued about this kind of thing before. All the work that we had done as lawyers, but more importantly, the work that Leona and Larry had done had paid off. A federal judge ruled today that the government should release the banned abortion drug RU486 to an American woman who tried to bring it in through JFK. U.S. District Judge Charles Sifton of Brooklyn Federal Court says the woman, Leona Benson, is entitled to the personal use exception of the Food and Drug Administration's ban on drugs which are not approved in the United States. When the ruling comes down, Larry hugs Leona in the courtroom. They were both thrilled, a little bit shocked, because we, as their lawyers, certainly had not overplayed the chances of winning. A car is waiting outside the courthouse. Dr. Tyre and Leona pile in and drive off to JFK Airport to collect the pills. It looks like, with just days to spare, 
Leona will have the medication abortion she wants. I think it was very emotional for them. You can imagine for Leona having traveled to Europe and to win even for a little while was extremely emotional. The two women arrive at JFK, but they can't pick up the pills yet. The Bush administration has filed a challenge to Judge Sifton's ruling. By 4 o'clock p.m. that same day, Simon and Larry are back in court in front of a panel of judges while Leona and Dr. Tyre idle at JFK. In court, Simon has this revelation. It was crystal clear when we went in front of the three-judge panel that we were going to lose. Simon presents his arguments to Judge John Walker, as in George Herbert Walker Bush. Yeah, he's the president's first cousin. Also sitting on the panel are Judges J. Daniel Mahoney and Frank Altimari, who were both appointed by President Ronald Reagan. None of them are swayed. After we'd won in front of Judge Sifton, they wanted to be absolutely sure that we weren't going to continue to win. For Leona to have gotten the RU-46 and used it to end her pregnancy would have been, for the Bush administration, uh, a political, a public relations disaster, a humiliation for them. They were not going to let that happen. They lose in the Second Circuit Court of Appeals. The feet snatched from the jaws of victory. So the options were just sit back and and decide that it's over, or ask the Supreme Court. Leona doesn't get the abortion pills that day, but the dominoes have fallen into place to trigger a Supreme Court challenge. And they've scored another kind of win, publicity for the pill, because now the nation is watching. News outlets across the country are reporting that the Bush administration is denying American women an innovative new abortion pill. The French-made drug is legal in Britain, China, and France, but the Food and Drug Administration hasn't approved it here. Abortion rights activists say it's purely political. For Larry, the optics are great, and they're supercharged, because this story is unfolding against the backdrop of the 1992 presidential election. The very week that Larry and Leona are in court in Brooklyn, then-candidate Bill Clinton is also in New York. He's about to land his party's nomination at the Democratic National Convention, which is being held across the river in Manhattan. The national media has descended on the city. But Larry isn't the only person trying to steal the limelight. As he left to jog this morning, Clinton was confronted by a man from Operation Rescue. That's next. Stay with us. You can unlock all episodes of Cover Up ad-free right now by subscribing to the Binge Podcast channel. Not only will you immediately unlock all episodes of this show, but you'll get binge access to an entire network of other great true crime and investigative podcasts, all ad-free. Plus, on the first of every month, 
subscribers get a binge drop of a brand new series. That's all episodes, all at once. Unlock your listening now by clicking subscribe at the top of the cover-up show page on Apple Podcasts or visit getthebinge.com to get access wherever you get your podcasts. I remember hearing about the stunt. I remember hearing about it when it came out. I mean, when it was first introduced, we were calling it a human pesticide immediately. Randall Terry is in New York the very day that Larry and Leona are in court making their case. He's in Manhattan, and he's seething. Bill Clinton was hell-bent on bringing this drug here. The drug, of course, is the abortion pill. Randall thinks that Clinton might bring RU486 to America if he's elected. Clinton was aggressively for abortion. The year before, Randall was riding high during the Summer of Mercy. But by the summer of 1992, he sees Bill Clinton and knows that if Clinton wins, anti-abortion activists could lose their momentum. Bill Clinton's in his mid-40s. He plays the saxophone. He smoked weed. The media's enchanted by this younger, cooler breed of politician. The tides are shifting, and Randall is desperate to refocus the moment. We were determined to paint the Democrat Party as the party of death, and Bill Clinton as the champion of aborted babies. And if we were going to create the social tension that was needed and begin to put pressure in the political arena, we had to have media coverage. Randall writes a script for a piece of political theater. The star of his show is his friend, Harley Bailiou. He's an anti-abortion activist and lives in upstate New York. I called up Harley and I said, I need you to come to New York City immediately. Harley agrees to do whatever Randall has planned. He piles in his car and drives 185 miles from Binghamton to Manhattan. We knew where Clinton was staying. We got a room for Harley at the same hotel and we knew his schedule. The media is fixated on Clinton and his every move. They show him on TV, jogging throughout the city every morning before the convention. We said, just be outside that door at about 6 o'clock in the morning. This may be the week of Bill Clinton's life, but his morning got off to an oddball start. On the morning of July 14th, as Larry and Leona are about to head into a New York court to try to get the abortion pill back, Bill Clinton leaves his hotel. Harley is yelling, Bill, Bill, I want your autograph, I want your autograph. Clinton takes the bait and walks over. Harley handed him the USA Today for Clinton to sign, and underneath the USA Today, in a clear plastic salad container, was this poor little aborted baby boy. Operation Rescue stops the presumed Democratic candidate for president to give him a real 19-week-old human fetus in a restaurant-style to-go container. He tried to hand Clinton what appeared to be a four-month-old fetus. And Harley says, Bill, what about the babies? What about the babies? Clinton recoiled but continued to greet passersby anyway on his morning in the park. That was it. Within 30 minutes, the judge had issued a warrant for our arrest. The FBI was looking for us. Randall makes a beeline out of New York. Turns out, transporting a fetus across state lines and improperly disposing of it are both illegal. And 
he'd been warned by a judge not to approach Clinton. And I ended up going to federal prison over that particular stunt for five months. This stunt gets attention. But the use of a real human fetus alienates some of Operation Rescue's allies in the Catholic Church and evangelical community and other folks who support crackdowns on abortion rights. I asked Randall about this when I talked to him in the spring. I think some people would say that this kind of stunt shows a lack of respect for human remains. And so how do you square using what you would view as a dead person's body in an attempt to send a political message uh, and get media attention? So all of them are buried properly, but some of them are put on display as like a wake or uh, like Emmett Smith's body was after he was beaten to death by the racists in the South. Randall is talking here about Emmett Till, a 14-year-old Black boy who was abducted, tortured, and lynched in Mississippi in 1955. Emmett Smith was a running back for the Dallas Cowboys. It's remarkable that Randall gets Emmett Till's last name wrong. Because invoking his painful and infamous death is one of Randall Terry's go-to soundbites. You hear it here. It's how he justifies gruesome stunts like this. Remember the mom of Emmett Smith. She was doing it with her own son to prove what monsters the racists and the Ku Klux Klan were. And we're doing it with these babies to show what monsters the baby killers are. Clearly, Operation Rescue is willing to do just about anything to end abortion in America. A lesson that Larry and fellow reproductive rights advocates would learn again. Back in Manhattan on July 14th, 1992, Leona has a decision to make. Time is running out. She only has a few days left to take the medication. And her role in the pill plot is taking a personal toll. She has two choices. Appeal the case to the Supreme Court, even though she still may not get a medication abortion, or give up now and save herself further stress. In my conversations with Leona Benton, she expressed that this was something she understood to be both personal to her, but also bigger than just her. With Simon on her side, Leona decides to take her case to the Supreme Court. She was going to be making history by what she did. And the case lands with a thud on the desk of the newest justice. Repeat after me. I, Clarence Thomas. I, Clarence Thomas. Do solemnly swear. Do solemnly swear. That I will support and defend... Leona Benton's pregnancy and the fate of the abortion pill was in the hands of Justice Clarence Thomas. We thought there were going to be 300 people at the door. The reason that people aren't mad is they don't know enough about it. But whatever was coming, we were ready. Abortion rights activist Lawrence Later hired his own chemist to dissect the French abortion pill, RU486. I was a little bit hesitant at first, and because this could be career-ending. <laughs> we were going to get to the bottom of this. That's next week on Cover Up, The Pill Plot. 
Cover Up, The Pill Plot is produced by Sony Music Entertainment. The show is hosted by me, TJ Raphael. Our story editor is Maureen McMurray. Our senior producer is Queena Kim. Our producer is Casey Georgie. Our associate producer is Kyra Asibe Bansu, along with Gabriela Santana. Our executive producer is Lizzie Jacobs. Sasonia Davenport and Tamika Balance-Kalazny are our production managers. Theme music and mixing for this show was done by Joanna Catcher of Nice Manners. Additional music comes from APM and additional engineering from Sam Baer. Our fact checker is Natsumi Ajisaka. Special thanks to Krista Ripple, Erica Gaida, Serena Chow, Rachel Choder, Catherine St. Louis, Tom Koenig, Steve Ackerman, Ryan Shepard, and Christopher Brown. You can listen to all of Cover Up the Pill Plot by signing up for the Binge and Apple Podcasts. And we'd love for you to leave a rating and review while you're there, too. Have a question or comment about this week's show? Send me a tweet at TJ Raphael. Thanks so much for listening. For Sony Music Entertainment, I'm TJ Raphael. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.